Desire can never be deceived. Interest can be deceived, unrecognized or betrayed, but not desire. Wentzreich's cry, no, the masses were not deceived. They desired fascism, and that is what has to be explained. This quote from the philosopher's Deleuze and Guattari seems like a perfect way to start off our final session, which might tie climate change for gloomiest topic yet. I'm not going to claim that white evangelicals are about to develop a full-blown case of fascism, but I do want to highlight its tendencies and affinities, tying it to the rise of global ethno-nationalism. If the faith doesn't die off soon, climate change will make those tendencies worse. Climate change is going to generate the perfect mix of conditions for xenophobia like never before. My claim is that if white evangelical leaders don't slide into a more openly authoritarian and anti-democratic posture, it will be for a lack of competence, not a lack of desire. So I want to end with a few lessons on fascism, and I want you to think about how these parameters map onto the white evangelical consciousness. As democratic ideals collapse in the Western world, we're confronted with the impossibility of neutrality. The German legal theorist Carl Schmitt once said liberalism only works in the interim period in which it's possible to answer the question Christ or Barabbas with a proposal to adjourn and appoint a commission of investigation. Why investigate fascism in a series on white evangelical desire? I'm skeptical about the odds of convincing anyone who doesn't already understand the reasons, but let's consider a few. First, white evangelicals are a an elect people. This is my claim from the introduction. There's an already forgiven chosenness that works as its only non-negotiable doctrine. This theological ratification justifies any avenue of exclusion or violence. Second, its enjoyment of hierarchy and dominance and submission to a strongman or a familiar order, a familiarity tinged with nostalgia, this is a fascist desire. And third, its apocalyptic vision already entails the destruction of the world and the bloodshed or damnation of all those who won't submit. And fourth, as we've seen throughout this series, white evangelicalism grounds itself in centuries-old patterns of white supremacy. Though its overt anti-Semitism has waned, its supersessionism has not. Animosity can always return, especially when the Jewish people exist only as pawns in its apocalyptic vision and still must eventually face judgment. Its wrath against people of color underwent no such dormancy. Finally, the practical consequences of recent elections in America bear out the truth that white evangelicals find fascist aesthetics exhilarating. The goals of the traditional religious right clearly resonate with today's so-called alt-right, just as Trumpism is the purest expression of the Republican project from the civil rights and Southern strategy era onward. It's certainly not an aberration. So too our era of turmoil is the purest expression of white evangelicalism's fate. If this fate does not ultimately develop into an open, permanent fascism, as I suspect and hope it won't, since it can settle for a permanent minoritarian rule, it will be for a lack of fascist uh, competence, not lack of fascist sympathies, sympathies. So there's this appetite. Those who see themselves as already forgiven have no use for shame or empathy. What then is fascism? Nobody seems to know, quite know for sure. It's a bit like the unconscious that way. When discussing the desire of the masses for fascism, Foucault says it's a term that gets thrown around like as a term of derision without any analysis of content. Is it the aftermath of some failed revolution? Benito Mussolini called the fascist state the, quote, highest and most powerful form of personality, a force but a spiritual force which takes over all the forms of moral and intellectual life of man, end of quote.
fascism was spirit and rejection for him, a theory and a practice, a will to power and to government. The word itself comes from an Italian word, meaning bundle, the fascist decalogue for the Italians was a sort of Ten Commandments for the black shirts. It read more like a list of platitudes for angsty youth. You know, Mussolini is always right was one of them. Another read, the enemy of fascism is your enemy. Discipline is the sunshine of armies, and so on. But there's a lesson here. Italian fascism rose to power without adequately defining its ideological parameters. The aesthetic of brute strength drew the mob. The average American would probably describe it as some sort of uh, totalitarianism without remembering that fascism did emerge in democracies. It was bubbling to the surface in so many democracies across the Western world. It normally won with less than 50% of the vote. For our purposes, I find political scientist Robert Paxton's definitions helpful and clear. Paxton showed how all functioning democracies exist in a type of pre-fascism, what he describes as a type of fertile space out of which a fascist desire can spring. He wrote at one point, quote, Fascism may be defined as a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity, in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants, working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites, abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraints the goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. End of quote. Paxton describes it as arriving in stages. The traits are already there in a democracy. So first, a movement is created. Then second, the movement roots itself in an existing political, usually democratic system. Third, the movement seizes power. Fourth, the movement exercises power. And then finally, the movement either radicalizes further or dies from entropy. According to Paxton, these stages show how not only there is a spectrum of fascist movement, but again, how the space of public debate and grievances in society creates the fertile ground out of which the fascist antipathy grows. If a movement grows and marches onward from the first step, it will appeal to a series of clustered mobilizing passions. Let me just read off Paxton's list of mobilizing passions to which the aesthetic uh, ideal will appeal. First, there's a sense of overwhelming crisis beyond the reach of any traditional solutions. Then the primacy of a group toward which one has duties superior to every right. The belief that one's group is a victim a sentiment that justifies any action without legal or moral limits against enemies both internal and external, dread of a group's decline under the corrosive effects of individualistic liberalism, class conflict, and alien influences, the need for a closer integration of a purer community by consent if possible or by exclusionary violence if necessary, the need for authority by natural leaders, always male, culminating in a national chief who alone is capable of incarnating the group's destiny, the superiority of the leader's instincts over abstract and universal reason, the beauty of violence and the efficacy of will when they are devoted to the group's success, the right of a chosen people to dominate others without restraint from any kind of human or divine law, right being decided by the sole criterion of the group's prowess within a Darwinian struggle. 
As the early critical theorists Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno wrote in the 1940s, the horror of fascism lies in the fact that the lies are obvious but persist. The lie requires the willing participation of those deceived. The lies get bigger and violence ramps up, giving people time to get used to it. People need a bit of time to reach the point of absolute cruelty, but it doesn't take that long. When news of concentration camps for immigrants hit in the summer of 2018, the argument in their defense was often that these were not concentration camps. To call it such was hyperbolic, because there's no mass executions. We learned that many Americans are actually perfectly fine with politically and ethically motivated concentration camps, so long as, for now at least, they're not also death camps. But conditioning people for violence takes a little time, so I think we need to ask, how long would it take to get Americans to come around to the idea of genocide? We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But we're moving in that direction. My working assumption today is that reactionaries would actually prefer an underclass of exploitable labor more than they'd prefer camps. But believe them when they tell you their intent. My claim is not that white evangelicalism or its uh, various other more uh, secularized conservative affiliates are fated to such a future. Certainly not. My claim is that they would gladly march right into that future under certain circumstances. My claim is that its desire is an inherently violent desire, which dismisses any pain it doesn't feel itself. Once we hear human beings labeled vermin, it's too late. Or today, when a nationalist refers to an actual human being as an illegal, that's pre-genocide talk. Believe them when they tell you their intent. The fascist then and now loves their conspiracy theories. The bigots question in the 1930s period was whether the world was controlled by a Catholic secret Rome or a Jewish secret Judah, as they put it. This type of tabloid conspiracy mongering was going on long before the publication of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This fake document, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, was originally fabricated in Russia around the turn of the 20th century, and it described a roadmap for Jewish domination. It was translated and widely distributed in the United States and Europe, and Nazis found it particularly helpful for amplifying anti-Semitism. But oddly enough, they took it less as a threat and more as a type of manual, almost. Hitler's famous slogan, for example, right is what is good for the German people, was copied uh, from the uh, fabricated protocols. Everything that benefits the Jewish people is morally right and sacred, as this fake document put it. So he took a completely fabricated document, inverted its message, and used it to project what he wanted to do. In 1939, shortly before it all began, Hitler gave a famous speech in which he said, quote, I want today once again to make a prophecy. In, this case, in the case that the Jewish financiers succeed once more in hurling the peoples into a world war, the result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. Both in his address and in the co-opted slogan from Protocols, Hitler's signaled violence was on its way and authorized as a type of self-defense. A few episodes back, we looked at the concept of a reverse revenge fantasy to describe the way that paranoia sometimes signals future intent. This is how a protocol's logic works. Here's a terrifying example closer to home, and the reason we need to consider how protocol's logic works. In 2015, there was a briefly popular conspiracy theory known by, known by the name Jade Helm 15. It drew its name from a real military training exercise involving over a thousand troops running from July 15th 
to September 15th in 2015. In a panic led by Alex Jones, conspiracy theorists feared President Obama was actually preparing to declare martial law in the American Southwest and round up conservatives in concentration camps run by the Federal Emergency Management Agency. These conspiracy theorists believed that Islamic State operatives were crossing the U.S.-Mexico border and plotting attacks, which the federal government would use as a pretense to round up Americans under martial law. Several Walmart stores had recently closed, and these conspiracy theorists believed that these would be the locations that would be for converting into internment camps. A man claiming to be a Texas Ranger called into a radio show at one point and said that he saw trains affixed with shackles crossing the state in preparation for the relocation of conservatives. Texas Governor Greg Abbott actually lent support to this panic and requested the Texas State Guard to monitor the Jade Helm joint military operation in the area, which was the basis for the conspiracy theory. This is the governor of Texas who said, quote, It is important that Texans know their safety, constitutional rights, private property rights, and civil liberties will not be infringed upon. Understand that while you might not have heard of this, it was a ubiquitous claim in conservative media, which says something about the alternative realities we now live in. But in a sense, this obvious fantasy, this crazy conspiracy theory that started over closed Walmarts, inverted and then came true. Three years after this panic, over the government opening up concentration camps for conservatives, real camps would be open for immigrant kids forcibly kidnapped from their parents at the border. The largest of the early camps was Casa Padre in Brownsville, Texas. It was a converted Walmart. Now, one of the most important authorities in the study of fascism today is Hannah Arendt, whose 1951 book, Origins of Totalitarianism, has been flying off the shelf again in recent years as authoritarian nativism is on the rise around the world, not just in the United States. A most salient uh, for our topic here is her concept of the graduations of gullibility, gullibility which keeps the fires burning in what she calls a hierarchy of contempt. This is our answer to the question of, for example, why don't evangelicals seem to be able to tell the difference between Jesus and neo-Nazis? Here's how Arendt describes graduations of gullibility. I used a, a sentence of this a couple of episodes back, but it's an important section, so I'll quote at length. Quote, In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. The mixture in itself was remarkable enough because it spelled the end of the illusion that gullibility was a weakness of unsuspecting primitive souls and cynicism the vice of superior and refined minds. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worse, no matter how absurd and it did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. The totalitarian mass leaders based their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that under such conditions one could make people believe the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting their leaders who had lied to them, they would protest that they had known all along that the statement was a lie and would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. End of quote. One psychoanalyst writing during the 1930s, Wilhelm Reich, said it's a mistake to even think of fascism as merely a form of government with these or those features. 
No, instead, Reich taught that fascism is, in a sense, the collective expression of the natural, hostile, aggressive, and contemptuous individual. Fascism is merely what you get in a highly organized and mechanized society that still doesn't provide you what you need. So Reich's definition of fascism was, first, lower middle class conditions and pressures, a sort of classical Marxian analysis. But then secondly, as a psychoanalyst, he argued that these conditions are exacerbated by an authoritarian family structure and sexual repression. So middle class culture and struggle combined with enjoyment of repression. Sound familiar? So in a way, Reich is saying, of all of us, what I'm saying about the white evangelical, it isn't that they are somehow different, but instead that they have found a way to bless with righteous language the deepest, cruelest, and most selfish desires of us all. This is the warning we need to hear today. In conclusion, we've explored so many trends uh, over the past 10 episodes. We've looked at white evangelicalism as a most dangerous faith, a faith positioned against future, against knowledge, against sexuality, against reality, and against society. And it's my hope that this course helps move the conversation out of the realm of argument or accusations of hypocrisy and into the realm of seriously analyzing desires and enjoyment. That's my hope for the book from which this material is drawn as well. That book's title, again, is Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Whatever comes of the cruelty of human suffering now, the climate's collapse lies before us. The world is quite literally burning out, and we don't have much time. For those of us seeking to counter the resonances of capital, heteropatriarchal misogyny, whiteness, and evangelicalism, among so many other machines we must break, our task is not to see ourselves as the savior rescuing the duped, but to understand why human beings desire to be duped and work around that desire. Society is repression. White evangelicalism is a symptom of repression in our time. We need to dismantle it, but we also need to work around it. So let me close by saying this. Don't waste time with games of interpretation. If we engage arguments and defense mechanisms in a test of strength, we will fail. Like in the book of Job, the master signifier gambles with their lives and yet demands fidelity, for it gives and takes away. In turn, they shall say, blessed be the name. Our battle is not one of information, but instead a battle of desire. And we are running out of time.